0: Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface may appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Dan and Rachel are parents of two very young children. The way they approached love the and marriage fascinated me, so I asked them to come on the show. But first, just a little bit of biographical information on Dan and Rachel. Ever since I've known him, Dan has been Mr. Adventure and Mr. Science. He's always going hunting, fishing, playing football, and taking more dentistry courses. One minute, this mild-mannered, specialized dentist is fixing unusual problems for people, giving them relief that other dentists can't do. The next minute, he's hiking through the woods, and he might be 24 hours away from his car and his phone. I met Rachel later at a massive camping event that occurs in Missouri around Labor Day. Soon, I learned that she's from a big, close-knit family, she was in graduate school, and she wanted to do as much as possible with her life. She's really well-balanced when it comes to her social, emotional, intellectual, fitness, and spiritual life. Both are smart, funny, athletic, and generous people, and their story is great. Hi, Dan and Rachel. Hey, what's going on, Tim? Hi, (laughs)
1: Dan.
0: Well, before we get into how you met and how your dating and engagement went and just what marriage has been like ever since, I'd like to get into both of your secret origin stories. Um, Dan, let's start with you. What kind of a kid were you? Um,
1: That's a good question. Um, I'd say I was probably definitely a very uh, wild kid. Very outdoorsy. Um, I was actually I was obedient, actually. Most people don't know that, but I was obedient. I listened to my parents. Uh, but, you know, I pushed the boundaries on a lot of things, and then they kind of wrote me back in. Um, you know, we went to church every Sunday, had a very normal childhood. Nothing too crazy, really. Um, grew up on a farm in the first part of my life, and then grew up in the suburbs in the second part. Um, as a kid. So um, I think that's how I kind of developed a love for the outdoors and just kind of being outside. Played lots of sports. Um, Really wasn't interested in school too much until I got to high school. Um, Yeah, it's kind of me as a kid.
0: Okay, I think we'll get to some of the wildness either a little bit later or who knows right now. Um, Rachel, how about you? What kind of a kid were you
2: so a tomboy I had an older brother who was four years older than me and then a twin sister and then uh, I saw obviously I still have these and then uh, let's see four younger siblings so the middle child but very much so a tomboy idolized my older brother wanted to be a boy for probably about the first eight years of my life I like I, if you look at any photographs of the first eight years of my life, it was boy shorts with a like, and one t-shirt or something like that. I love playing street basketball. Like that was just something I was into. And, um, yeah, right around when I turned around eight or nine, I was like, you know what, maybe I should try putting on girl shorts and see how that goes. And, uh, I just remember the first day I walked down the stairs and my whole family was like shocked. That I was wearing girl shorts, and I actually looked like a girl. Um, so very much so, tomboy, uh, a little bit more of a rebel child, um, but also obedient, kind of like you did. Came from a family of seven kids, and very much adored each of my siblings. Babysat my siblings most of the time. So um, yeah, I would say I was like a trust trustworthy kid in, in the eyes of a parent. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I find this just fascinating so far because for as long as I've known you, Dan, I've just kind of pictured you, you know, kind of living on the edge a little bit, like living a little dangerously, or just, hey, I'm back from school. I just feel like climbing a tree that's three stories tall. I just, just being very spontaneous, just doing things off the cuff. And now I'm hearing maybe more of an obedient kid. This, this just kind of floors me.
1: Yeah, I was, I was pretty obedient, but. I mean, I can say like probably by the time I was, see, I was on the farm, till I was about, about seven or eight. So I think when I was seven years old, we had, a, we had a windmill. It was an old farm from like 1920s. And the windmill would like pump water. It was an old, old windmill, it was shut down and everything like that. But uh, I was seven, I just saw there was a ladder and I was like, hey, I'm going to climb that. And so I, was, I became very, I just was naturally very daring. Um, I didn't really feel a lot of fear. And I just climbed the windmill all the way up to the top. My dad came home from work and he realized that I, he saw, he looked at the windmill and I was all the way at the very top of this windmill on the ladder. And I think that was like probably the first sign that my dad knew that like, okay, I got the kid who just doesn't experience fear the same way, or respond to it the same way as other people do. So uh, and then in that way, I think I was, I was wild. Um, I don't think I was wild in terms of like misbehavior, but maybe a little bit of that, I don't know.
0: Right, not not breaking right. the law so much, just more like climbing tall things and later doing like right. rugged maniacs and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then Rachel, your answer really kind of surprised me too, because I'm hearing a little bit more rebelliousness, and ever since I've known you, you've been kind of a straight A student.
2: I think when I say rebellious, that is probably comparative rebellious to my especially my sisters um my sisters, they are very loving, very, like, just sweet, honest, caring people, um, whereas I would challenge my dad especially more than any of my sisters, and to this day, I still do if there's something my dad says that I disagree with, um, especially if it's a matter that I find important. Um <laughs> So, like, I wouldn't say rebellious, like, I'm going to go out drinking and have a big party. Like, not like that. Rebellious in the sense that I would challenge people if I didn't think it was right or if it was the truth.
0: Love it. I just love it. Well, I, I guess then advanced education makes sense for a person who's going to do that much questioning. That's really helpful. Um, so you've kind of both alluded to this, but how do you both fit into your, your relatively large families?
1: Uh, we're both the third child. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so we're kind of like middle of the pack. Um, I'm the oldest boy, so I had a lot of responsibilities that when came to... You know, being the oldest boy, I did that. It was a model for my two younger brothers. Um, but I also had my two, other, two older sisters to look up to, uh, Lee and Angie. Um, so they fought some of my battles as a kid. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was uh, kind of, middle of the middle of the road. Had to learn a little bit of diplomacy when you're, um, you know,
0: in the middle of the family. Yeah, generally speaking, don't they think that the middle kid has to learn to get along with everybody?
3: That's what they say.
0: Yeah, and I think you gotta eat fast, or you're gonna run out of food.
2: It's true. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Rachel. All
2: the kids, kids have to do that.
0: <laughs> Rachel, how about you? How did you fit into your family?
2: Um, kind of the same, I guess. Like I had for a long while when I was a tomboy. I I think I still am, but when I was like more on that spectrum, you could call it. Um. <laughs> You. I was very much so close to my older brother. Um, and then I would say, kind of like what you had said, is you get along with everyone. As I got older, um, my twin sister and I were always close, but we just became more and more best friends. We developed the same interests and likes. And, and then with my younger siblings, babysitting them, um, really developed a relationship, a strong relationship that I still have to this day with each of my younger siblings. So Um, I guess as far as like how I fit, I don't know, I guess kind of in the middle, uh, I fit where I have a good relationship with each of my siblings and that's kind of how I would
1: describe it. Yeah. You're kind of more of a leader in the family. you and Laura, because they had to babysit a lot because
0: both their parents worked. Yeah. So. Let um, me ask you, ask you this. Um, I interviewed one lady who came from a family of 15, there were 15 kids and two parents, and her parents were just as strict as they'd come. Uh, just drill sergeant all the way. And then I interviewed another couple. Uh, I think they're both turning 50 and they've got seven kids. And uh, half the kids are out of the house now because they're like 24, 25 years old, that kind of thing. And they were about as lenient and relaxed as possible. And now I just don't know what to think. So I, I'm just very curious about your parents. Were your parents strict? or were they indulgent? I guess in what ways were they strict? I'll ask that first.
1: Um, Yeah, I'd say when I think about how were my parents strict, first thing that comes to mind was uh, uh, the behavior that you're expected to have or not have in the house. Like no profanity was allowed. Um, You weren't allowed to fight with your brothers and sisters. Um, you could argue, but yeah, if it got to be fighting, that wasn't allowed. Um, church always on Sunday, it was always mandatory in your behavior at church. was probably, probably the biggest thing is like, you know, you know, there's no farting in mass or being a distraction <laughs> or like things like that. Um, but yeah, so that's, yeah, I kind of grew up that way. So, and it stuck though, because I even when I went to college and I became less serious about my faith, I always went to mass on Sunday. Um, that was just instilled from a young age.
0: So, Okay. Uh, Rachel?
2: I think, so this is something we notice even now, that Dan's family dynamic is very similar to my family dynamic. Um, and so I would agree with everything that Dan just said that existed in his family. I think the only thing I would elaborate on, when I think of, like, what were they my parents most strict about, Um, it was probably media. So what we saw on TV was very strict. Um, and I think I'm so grateful for that because I think I kept my innocence for a longer phase of time. Um, but yeah, if there was a sex scene on TV, we turned it off right away. Instinctively, we knew that even as kids, turn this off. Um, this isn't to be watched. Um, Same thing with music, right? If there was something vulgar in our music, I remember very clearly and vividly my dad smashing CDs, like rap CDs that my brother had um, because they just weren't appropriate. So I think media was a big one for us. My parents were very strict on what we were exposed to.
0: Okay. Um, Well, it just seems like things work because you both got advanced degrees and you're just both very educated and you're just – Things have just turned out so well for you, but I'll talk a little bit more about that later, I think. Um, in what ways do you think your parents were indulgent?
2: My parents, my dad was, uh, I described him as probably one of the most like fun people. Um, he would be out there, let me tell you about my dad. He worked um, night shifts as an RN. So when you work night shift, you come home during the day exhausted, and you sleep during the day. It's just a different lifestyle. And I very vividly remember my dad waking up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd be like, Dad, 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 let's go play football. And he'd go, let me drink my coffee. And he'd go get himself a cup of coffee, and he'd drink his coffee. And then we would play. So as far as, like, I think, when I think about my parents, what was indulgent, playing was something that... It was very active in our lives. We were always playing a game, a board game, an outdoor game. Um, that was something that they were very indulgent on. It deserves to be another one. We always had ice cream pretty much every day or or cake or something like that. But
0: yeah. How do you stay so thin with all that cake and ice cream? This is just blowing can, my mind. You
2: can eat whatever you want. It's great. Like. <laughs> It catches
0: up to you when you're older, but as a kid, yeah. Yeah, well, it hasn't caught up to either of you just yet, I don't think. Um, yeah. Gosh, and then just the play thing, and then you turn into such hard workers. I, I'm beginning to think maybe if people played more, they'd work more.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Just a random theory. Okay, Dan, how about you? In what ways do you think your parents were indulgent?
1: Um, you know, The first thing I think of is we were allowed to do or pursue any kind of extracurricular activities that we wanted. I mean, if there was uh, any sport that we wanted to do, we were allowed to go out for it. If it was going to go out for band, you know, you're allowed to do that. Um, so it's kind of very uh, free in that regard. then um, playing outside, uh, when I, growing up on the farm, uh, we were allowed to just be outside and go wherever we wanted. So <laughs> it was just like, You know, acres and acres and acres of land and uh, field and and woods and creeks. So we were allowed to explore
0: a lot. So Were your parents of the type? Because mine, I grew up in a small town, but they were kind of of the type where, hey, you know, it's noon, we just got done eating, be home by six. And so then we would take off on our bikes and then we would just go anywhere and do anything for maybe the next six hours if we had that free time. And they just, they may not have known where we were. You know, but it was fine. I mean, it was a small town. We were safe, et cetera. Were your parents just kind of like, hey, just go play for a few hours?
1: Yeah, that sounds a lot like my uh, childhood, too. Um, Even in the suburbs, it was kind of a small town still at that point, um, Eureka, Missouri. Yeah, we, you know, drive up to the candy store Ben Franklin and get some candy or, you know, pedal our bikes over to the pond, throw rocks in it, you know, go catch fish in the creek, things like that.
0: Yeah, it sounds perfect. Okay, so college. I I have a theory that college changes everybody. Uh, What was college like for both of you?
2: I would describe it kind of as a growing experience. I went to Benedictine College. So one of the pros slash con about Benedictine is that they have something called the Benedictine Bubble. You're surrounded by Catholics. So if you are Catholic... It's a great place for formation of your faith, but not necessarily a great place for challenging of your faith. Um, So college for me was this this timeline, especially sophomore year, where I was starting to question like, who am I? And I I think everyone maybe has that phase. I don't know if it hits them in college or high school, but I really started to question, who am I? Is my faith real? Like, why is my faith real? Why is it true? Um, so I started having a lot of those questions. So I would definitely describe it as a time of growth. Um, and the answers didn't necessarily come in college. I found that they came very shortly after, um, within maybe a year or two, but, but yeah, it was definitely a questioning time of my life.
0: Who are you? Well, what was the answer?
2: Um, I guess the answer about that was, very much so rooted in my family. So I identified, I started identifying myself at that time of who am I in the eyes of my family? And it was like, I am loved. I am um, cared for. I am Catholic. I'm loved by God. Um, I'm his daughter. Just kind of like the, the basic theological answers were one of the ones that came up. Um, But I think also things that I started to realize were like the strengths and weaknesses side. Like, you know, I'm athletic, I am energetic, I am fun, right? But then you also start to realize like your weaknesses too. Like um, maybe I can be a bit cynical or down. And so I think those were things that I was starting to understand more about myself, my strengths, my weaknesses, and then who I am in the eyes of God and my family.
0: Well, I, I love it. That seems very self-insightful. Um, Dan, how about you? What did college do to you? Do for you? Do to you? Um,
1: college was <laughs> so one thing. Rachel was homeschooled through high school, and she only spent three years in college. So, right? Together. So, wow. I was kind of the opposite. I <laughs> super
2: super senior. <laughs> super senior.
1: <laughs> I got up to community college for two years, and then I went to Mizzou, University of Missouri, for another four years, and I just kind of took classes that I wanted to take. I never graduated. Um, (laughs) I was close, but I just took courses that I wanted to take, Uh, took a lot of science courses. Um, But I would say that my first part of college started with me being very just um, concerned with grades, making sure I had like a 3.5 or higher. And then I would do whatever I wanted. I'd say I kind of fell away from like my moral compass. I think was like failing me in college, but I still went to church on Sunday, so something was still working. Um, But eventually, you know, you you know, you have to can't serve two masters, kind of thing. So eventually, you have to make a decision. And I think when I was the end of my 21st year, about right when I turned 22, um, I had kind of a conversion. I got. Kind of deeper into my faith. Um, that's, that's the route I chose, and then when I did that, college became a little bit like easier because uh, you know, grace builds on you know, grace and uh, or virtue virtue growth on virtue, and uh, kind of just like choosing to be more disciplined um, helped me out with my grades uh, even more. And then eventually, I got into dental school, and then I uh, rolled into Kansas City um started dental school there. Yeah.
0: Well, and then you did graduate from dental school. I just want to point that out.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So I graduated from dental school. Uh, yeah, in Kansas City, I found uh, a city on a hill um, and a bunch of other like young adult ministries uh, that I took part in. I really explored my faith there, and, uh, and it grew, and I took on um, some... Uh, ministries, you know, uh, some youth ministries, uh, men's group, um, and so many other things. It's hard to list them. Uh, But yeah, so I really grew my faith there. Took a lot of courses with the Bishop Helmsing Institute and just learned more about my faith. Um, I got to know a lot of really great Catholics there and uh, you yourself, Tim, included in that. Um, Yeah, dental school was great for me. I didn't I was not bothered by dental school at all. It was probably one of the best times of my life. So,
0: Well, during that era, I would come over to your place and we would do P90X. I was teaching high school and I was teaching college. Right. And in between the two, we would get together and we would do P90X. And I'd say, how was your day? And these P90X workouts were 45 minutes long of weightlifting or whatever. And for 45 minutes, you could discuss dental school every single day and never run out of things to say. I learned more about molars and incisors and how professors operate and how they don't operate than I just ever imagined that it would possibly learn. It just absolutely blew my mind. And actually, I want to kind of give you some props for, for the six years of college, just from the standpoint that you did take all of the classes you really wanted to take. You kind of OD'd on math and science. Uh, and, and if you didn't have a use for it, you didn't take it. It makes me think maybe that's how college should be. So I just want to just want to give you some props for that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay, so after college, we have our first adult jobs, and there's that, but I also kind of want to know, how well do you feel like you both were transitioning to adulthood?
2: How well were we transitioning
0: into adulthood? Yeah. yeah, or adjusting, however you want to phrase it.
2: i had transitioned better because i I was asking a lot of questions about myself without really strongly seeking answers or really strongly diving into my faith and thank god that after college i moved into i moved to louisville kentucky and i developed this friend network that really helped me first off, encouraged my faith, which then helped encourage all those answers. And that's really, I think, when I transitioned to an adulthood, because I'm not surrounded by family anymore, you kind of are out on your own. Um, uh, You, your your questions about yourself are being answered. Um, And so I think, like, just as far as that transition, thank God that he gave me the friend network that I had. And I think the same answer would probably be for Dan. I know that City on the Hill and you and Sean and, you know, so many other people just really helped form him into the adult man that he is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would say it was pretty easy and good after college um, once I had that network.
0: Yeah. Getting the, getting the network is really, really important. I just feel so much for people who are not able to find a good friend Network or a good faith network, um, either in college or after. Um, Dan, would you like to say any more about just adjusting to adulthood post college? Well, yeah,
1: I think being in school as long as I was, uh, you know, after high school, which is ten years actually, um, coming out, I <laughs> I survived like you know the economic downturn of the two thousand eight housing market.
4: Yeah,
1: was it the housing market. Yeah. Um, all the years that Obama was in the office and all that. I never had to deal with any of it. I was living on student loans and just going to class. I never had to deal with like, bills or anything like that or any, in, in any real way. When I got out, I got a job and it became really hard. Uh, I, I s- started to really um, understand the magnitude of the debt that I owed and how hard it was to um you know, make sure I found a job that was going to pay that off, um, you know, in a timely manner and just kind of putting all those things together. And also at the same time, having questions about like, where is my vocation? You know, and I felt called to marriage and I was like, well, where is this person I'm supposed to marry? Um, you know, always ask myself, like, do I need to move cities? Do I need to or to a different city? Do I need to uh, find a different job somewhere? And where is it that God wants me to be? But uh, I did feel safe um, or, um, I would say, at peace uh, being in Kansas City and following my faith. I knew that as long as I'm doing that, God's going to find me and move me where he wants me. In, so,
0: Okay. Very good. Um, okay. Then there's dating. Um, let's talk about that. How was dating for each of you before you met each other?
1: Oh, I was I was very selective. <laughs> I was I was really concerned with um, my faith life and making sure, you know, I ran my, a youth group ministry with uh, St. Peter's Church in um, Ken City, and I was part of a men's group, and I was leader there, um, I was part of the SPO outreach, um, and so I had a lot of things that I did with my faith, and that put me in contact with a lot of, like, very nice Catholic women, and uh, I would date for a little bit, um, nothing ever turned out really you know, substantial, obviously. Um, so I met Rachel, but I would say that, uh, I wanted dating to be more on the, in the forefront of my life. And at the same time I, I had already put faith, my faith life there. Um, and I just really wasn't like a serial dater. It's just like not kind of not the kind of guy I was. Um, so I, I think I wanted to date more, but, uh, I didn't, I think I was at peace with that most of the time. So
0: I, I wish more people would take on leadership positions like you did. Because the minute somebody's in a leadership position, I, I'm in one in a tiny way as a teacher. You just really see yourself through the eyes of other people. And you just really sort of see, am I behaving in a good way or am I behaving in a bad way? Rachel, how about for you dating before you met Dan.
2: enjoyable, but I think ultimately it was always a little bit unfulfilled because, um, even though I would say all the guys that I dated met a certain base criteria, which I call a trifecta, which was like, you had to be Catholic. You have to be, um, engaging in fun. That was another one. And then I have to be attracted to you. I think that sounds kind of shallow, but attraction actually is super important. So, um, those were kind of the three basic criteria I had to date. And um, while all of the guys that I dated met those criteria, um, they didn't meet some of the other needs that I had. Um, And dating in that way was very educational because I started realizing what do I want that I didn't expect that I needed or wanted in a man. And none of those really came to fulfillment until I met Dan. And right away I saw the characteristics that were lacking um, in some of these other men that I had dated. And I I saw those characteristics in
0: Dan. Oh, I'm just dying to know what some of those are right now. Could you just maybe mention just uh, what got added onto the trifecta once, once Dan came into the picture?
2: One of the biggest ones was, um, which is actually was kind of surprising for me. It was a desire I realized late into dating after dating maybe three guys was that I need someone who is an alpha male. So because I'm a tomboy and I like, it's true though because I'm a tomboy and, um, I kind of can come across as like, I got this kind of as independent, um, intimidating <laughs> because of that. Um, Uh, A lot of the guys that I dated, they gave me too much free reign in the relationship to where I kind of felt like I was wearing the pants too much. Um, And I didn't like that. I wanted to be led. And I think I read something later that it's an inherent desire for women, usually part of a woman's desires, is that they want to go on an adventure with someone. They want to be led by someone. Um, And then they want to be fought for. And so to have someone who I saw as a protector, and to have someone I saw as as having authority, yes, but I don't want to sound like a subordinate. wife, authority in the sense of, um, uh, yeah, just protection and love and care over you. Um, and uh, and I saw those qualities in Dan. That he was a protective. Caring, loving alpha male that I wanted in the relationship. So well, as I long right, I noticed, I noticed that right away.
0: <laughs> well, as, as long, long as I've tired. known him, he always takes the initiative. Um, he he just thinks of something and then he does it, and other people are still thinking about it, and he's half done with it.
2: If I have the time, one of my favorite I, this is like just I'll briefly say this. One of my favorite alpha male stories about Dan was actually when we first met. Um, Because you were there. We were at that camping trip. Yeah. I think this might be one of the next questions of how you met. Um, So it was at this camping trip um, where it's basically a Catholic camp out down near Lake of the Ozarks. And um, I met Dan there. And uh, I saw him and immediately liked him and was attracted and wanted to know him more. And so I remember very vividly there's the lake. And then um, there's kind of like a shelf where you can watch the events going on at the lake. And Dan was in the lake, and he was playing, you could call it like water polo with like the greased watermelon, right? And Dan was like really getting out there and making bowls. And I was like, ooh, ice swoon, He's so attractive, right? <laughs> and, um, and then uh, it was my turn, and I get out there, and I'm like, well, Dan's watching me, I, I hope. So I'm gonna really throw myself out there, trying to get as many goals as I can. So I was like trying to, you know, ramp up my athleticism and uh, well, so anyway, events are going on in the lake. I come out of the lake and I sit on that shelf again. And as I sit down, like, I, I, there was like a row of guys sitting one by one who'd come down and sit next to me. They're all like sitting in a line talking to me. And I was just, like, in my head, I'm like, well, thanks. I'm flattered, but I'm not really interested in any of you. (laughs) Dan, where is Dan? And Dan, all of a sudden, uh, while I'm conversing with these guys, Dan comes down from the shelf, and he walks down, 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 and he sits directly between me and the guys. And he, like, broad faces me, like, shoulders facing me, Back facing the guy is basically closing them all off, and he says, "Would you like to go jet skiing with me tomorrow morning?" Wow! And I'm like, yeah, I would. And he goes, "Perfect, eight AM. We'll do it tomorrow." And then he walks away mysteriously, but very much so like the alpha male in that instance.
0: I, I have to know. Were those the? I've never heard this story. Were those the very first words he ever spoke to you?
2: No, no, we had talked just above the shelf prior to that. So when I saw, actually, I should go back. When I was driving the Catholic camp out, my brother sent me a picture of Dan. And he said, because Dan, my brother knew him from dental school. And he's like, you have to meet this guy. I think he'll really hit it off. And so I, I knew what Dan looked like. I'd seen this picture of him. I'm like, oh, he's cute. And so then once we were at the campsite, I was like, you're Dan, right? And then we got to talking. We only talked for maybe about 10 minutes um, before the whole grease pig, um, kind of not grease pig, but grease watermelon event happened. So uh, we talked, yeah, for maybe about 10 minutes.
0: Wow. So, yeah, but you hit a minute number 11, and boom, he just walls off the other guys, asks you to go jet skiing, and uh, then the rest just bloomed. It just blossomed after that.
4: Very much so, yeah.
0: Okay. Well, let me ask this, Um, right before you met, um, you know, before you knew the other person existed, what do you think the biggest challenge in your life was at that time, if you can remember?
1: Oh, I I definitely remember. Uh, I remember where I was working, and uh, I was working for a family dental practice, uh, in the Brookside area and then also for a uh, mobile dentistry unit company. Um, I remember thinking that I really wanted to change my job, that I needed to do something about that. And, uh, and then with that goes like organizing my finances. Um, and also like uh, dating I really I knew and I felt like I was being like called by God to like really take uh, dating like more seriously. And I kind of maybe stepped away a little bit more from the, the social aspects of, like, uh, the young adult community that I was part of, um, just so that I could, like, focus more on that. That probably happened, like, yeah, probably, like, that summer before I met Rachel.
0: So am glad
1: I met Rachel, actually, just months prior.
0: You kind of took a step back from the friend group just so that you could look at the big picture.
1: Yeah, kind of like that. Uh, like, there's lots of like young adult events that are happening in Kansas City that are like Tuesdays at the Boulevard and things like that. Um, and I was still taking a leadership role in like the men's group and the youth group that I was a part of and, and other things like that. But I was kind of like honing more in on like, a, you know, like dating and kind of the discernments of that.
0: So gotcha. And then also in the background, just kind of thinking, I need to change my job. And I just want to, you know, maybe improve my financial situation just a little bit. Um, So I I feel like we've possibly discussed the how did you meet" idea. Um, And I certainly heard what Rachel initially thought of you, Dan. But let's let's flip it around. When you first saw Rachel or heard about Rachel, what did you think about her? First impressions.
1: Um, The first time I saw Rachel, she was... um she walked by me, and I noticed her long hair, her pretty long hair, and I, I thought she was a very pretty girl, and I wanted to talk to her. Um, so eventually I did that, and I went there, and I said, you know, hello, my name is Daniel, what's your name, and Rachel. Uh, we just talked a little bit, it was early, I Just kind of like, you know, how'd you get here, how'd you find out about, you know, this place, and um, kind of questions like that, who do you know? Um, and she said that she, I remember she said that she met you, so.
2: Yeah, Tim, yeah. you were the first one I met actually at that camp out. I don't know if you
0: know that. Well, I, I think I do because I think we both pulled up in our cars at roughly the same time. And I popped out of my car and then there you were. And I, I just thought I'm here to be social. And so then I start chatting with you. And that was just really interesting. And then, of course, people are going here, people are going there. And our conversation just sort of came to a natural conclusion. And then... Yeah, then I guess Dan saw you just a little bit later, and then things happened for the two of you. Okay. Um, Now that I kind of know what you both thought about each other when you first met, everybody has insecurities of some kind. Just at this time in your life, regarding yourself, what were you worried about?
2: I was worried that I was too young. And I was worried, uh, like when we first met, I was worried that I was too young because we're six years apart and I thought, Oh no, like he won't want to date me cause I'm too young. Um, Jim. and then later I remember being insecure. Dan's very intellectually stimulated. And I remember later being insecure that I wasn't like, not smart enough, but intellectually stimulating him enough. Um, like feeding that appetite that he has for knowledge. I felt like I was like not stimulating him enough. So that was another insecurity that I had
4: later. Mm
0: -hmm. Gosh, that just seems so weird to hear somebody with an advanced degree say something like that. But I I guess, well, I I asked, we all have our insecurities and they don't always make sense to outsiders. And I'm an outsider. Um, Dan, how about you? Insecurities?
1: Oh, I would probably say just the debt that I had from dental school and knowing that I was still trying to find like who I was within dent. It seems, I feel like uh, a lot of people who aren't in dentistry would just look at someone who became a dentist to be like, well, then it's easy. You're just a dentist. Dentistry is all the same, but it's kind of not, there's many different ways in which you can practice dentistry, you know, or do dentistry. And um, you, know, you can go the corporate route. You can go with your private practice. You can, you know, just be an associate um, you could do mobile dentistry. You could do, you, could, you know, own a bunch of practices. You know, there's many different ways you could do surgical dentistry, or uh, like implants and like and bone grafting and things like that. Or you could specialize in more aesthetics, where you're doing veneers and high end cases. Or you could do just family dentistry or pediatric dentistry. Um, so there's just so many different ways, and I didn't know really which one was going to be fulfilling for me. And then at the same time, you also have to find a way that, you know, something has to be, um, financially, you know, gainful, you know, you can't just do it, do it all for free. Um, you got to find a way to to pursue those things that you want to pursue. Um, so trying to figure that part out of my career was a big, um, process for me. Um, and I think that was an insecurity because. All the while you're figuring that out, you still have this, like, debt that's, like, you know, mounting. If you're not paying it off, it's, you know, it's growing in, you know, like, interest. So, I think that's probably one of, the, like, the bigger insecurities that I had.
0: Well, and you were sort of uh, trapped between a rock and a hard place for a little while, at least as far as I see it, because, so there's a dental school in Kansas City, and then you wanted to stay in Kansas City, which meant that there were a lot of dentists. And so then supply and demand does not exactly work in your favor, you know, because people don't want to move out of Kansas City. People like the area. It's very friendly. It's very Midwestern. There's tons of stuff to do. Uh, The demographics for all kinds of different populations are just fantastic. It's really kind of tough to move out of Kansas City, but then supply and demand wise for your job, it just, there's too much competition. You know, if you'd been willing to move to, I don't know, an extremely rural place, uh, you probably could have made a killing like right off the bat. You were just sort of like trapped for at least a little while. You know, I I feel like the thing that busted the trap was actually the dating. Um, And so tell me about dating. Just tell me the story. How long did you date? What did you do? How did you handle things?
1: So, first date was September 7th. And that was the jet skis. Yeah. And I would say we just made plans right after that to like, hey, let's, let's meet up again. Are you going to be in Kansas City? She lived in Columbia sorry, at the time.
4: Yeah,
1: um, But her brother lived in Kansas City. Um, and so she, we made plans to like meet up again later on. And then uh, that week, I think we went to a, to a Royals game.
3: <laughs> to a Royals
1: game. And then uh, we went up Jack to the Stacks. park. We hung out. We went up to Jack Stacks. So we did lots of Kansas city dates mm-hmm. uh, and they were just kind of like fun. We just got together, hung out. Um, and at the end, I was just like, I don't know where this is going, but let's, it's fun. Let's just keep having fun. And I think that's kind of the, for me, if there's a secret to dating, I think it's, it's that you don't want, you don't want to go take it too seriously, um, like too soon, like just make it fun, you know? And then if you're having fun together, that's a good thing, you know, but and it was easy to have fun with Rachel um, and our conversations were really easy because we had so much in common. We were both Catholic. We both were taking our faith very seriously. And we both had a positive view of marriage. And that probably came from our parents. Um, so having that positive view and wanting to have that for ourselves uh, really just allowed us to um, move very smoothly through um those conversations about marriage and and just the relationship
0: in general. Mm
4: -hmm. It's
0: great. Rachel, how about you?
2: Um, I think pretty much everything Dan had said, the only thing I would add was that we were long distance until we got engaged. Um, So uh, during the weekdays, we called each other every day. We both downloaded the Ticket to Ride app and we played games every day. Yeah. Got so sick of that game, actually, after a couple of weeks. <laughs> On the weekends, almost every weekend, we would get together, um, whether it was St. Louis or Columbia or Kansas City, and do something fun, usually. Um, so that was kind of what it looked like, dating looked like, I would say.
0: Okay. How did you get engaged?
2: Dan, you want to take that one? It's yeah. usually the, the man's story How did
1: you get engaged? Like oh, that. so uh, engagement was fun. Um, Rachel was in a, uh, she was doing a, like an internship for her PT school and she chose to do it in Alaska and she was up in Alaska for about, oh okay, yeah, she was up in Alaska for about, oh, two months. And during that time, um, she had a friend up there who said that they would put me up, um, so I, so I could come visit her. So I go up to Alaska and visit her and I'm going to stay for like, you know, two weeks or so. And eventually, we plan all these hikes, and we're gonna go hiking and camping and stuff. And we go all the way up to Denali, which is kind of north of Anchorage. We're out there. We're doing some backpacking. We climb to the top of this ridge, uh, like a mountain. And uh, I thought it was the perfect place to um, to propose. So we uh, set up camp there on top of a mountain. Um, And then eventually, like she's getting something ready for cooking, and she gets back her backpack, and she's getting, like, forks and knives and stuff, and I kneeled down, and I proposed to her right there. Um, uh, Yeah, so it was really nice. Uh, It was on top of a mountain, and it was fun. I remember after that, we were uh, just, like, talking about our future together and all things we wanted for, you know, to, uh, or all things we wanted to do to prepare for marriage and things like that, so... It was a really fun trip, and it was a fun engagement.
0: Well, and it's the most scenic place on earth. I've been to Alaska. I've been to, I don't know, maybe 40, 45 American states, and it's just just gorgeous. It's just absolutely gorgeous, and you really picked a wild, adventurous place to be, and so props to you. Um, So marriage. Marriage comes along. Um, I guess discuss just a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, um... So we got married. Um, let's see here. I moved to Columbia and I got my own place um, right after I came back from Alaska. And I had a new job out there. Um, and it was doing the kind of dentistry that I wanted to do. And I was getting trained in on that. And uh, things were kind of really taking off for me job wise. And we planned for uh, the wedding and everything. We took a year to kind of plan it. So we're not going to rush it at all. And it comes around to like, you know, May of 2017 and we get married and we go back to Alaska for our honeymoon. (laughs) And um, and we came back and it was uh, it was cool to be married. It's definitely different than dating. Um, We were still having lots of fun doing lots of board games. We didn't have any kids yet, obviously. And, um, you know, it has all those. They say the the most difficult year being married is the first year. And you can see how that's true. Um, there was just, there was a lot of arguments. You're, you're finally living with that person and there's no like getting rid of that person. They're just, they're always there. And when you wake up, they're there. You come home, they're there. So uh, kind of just getting used to each other's habits, um, you know, was like a big adjustment. But, uh, you know, overall it was a, it was a really fun first year of marriage. Um, then after that, you add kids to it and it just kind of gets
0: going. What do you think is a bigger change in your life, um, having a, the having that first child or, or getting married?
1: I would say they're both really big. I, maybe the first child. Um, because you get married and you learn, you kind of learn how selfish you are and then how much you have to change. Um, and then you get to that, your first child and it kind of gets real then because now there's a new human being uh, there and uh, it gets really serious and you start to learn. And it's easy though. You're all, you're very willing to be selfless when you know, it's your child. Um, So, but you definitely feel that call, you know, to be more sacrificial and selfless.
0: That's pretty cool. Um, Do you, um, do you feel like you're head over heels in love with your child? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> I definitely do. Uh, you just hanging around them and you see them smile and you kind of develop that bond. Um, you know, in the beginning they're just very precious and you, you don't really see too much of a personality in there. Um, but as like the months go on, you just see more of their personality and they're smiling and they're, uh, you, that relationship really grows. Um, and yeah, you definitely head over heels for your kids. They're, Awesome. Absolutely.
0: Well, I, I want to, I want to um, move on to big picture questions like underlying principles, beliefs, and attitudes. Um, Rachel had to disappear for just a minute to go take care of the baby. And that's real life. And that's just family. So I'll ask yeah. you these questions. And it'll be very intriguing because when Rachel comes back, we'll see if she gives very, very different answers. Um when it comes to dating and the search for someone to spend, you know, the next 50, 60, or even 70 years of your life with and to raise children with, what do you think you were looking for in the first place?
1: So what do you think you're looking for in the first place? I would say, um, like for me personally, I think it would be, uh, Uh, faith. Faith would be the first thing you'd want to look for and someone who looks at marriage with the same kind of um, or holds it with the same importance that you hold it with, you know that it's a holy institution, you know it's a sacrament. Um, and has the same kind of like commitment to it and perseverance to it. Because um, if you're not seeing it the same way, then I think that's you know that's just recipe for disaster. let me take a look at the other part of the question. Yeah, I definitely looked at, uh, what kind of qualities Rachel had that would be good motherly qualities that I would want to see in somebody who's going to be a mother to my children. Um, and another really big part of that was, uh, meeting her family and kind of seeing like what kind of stock she came from, how uh, her parents regarded their faith and how her siblings did. Um, And seeing like, you know, that was all very, for me, reinforcing when I met Rachel that, you know, her faith was very serious in her family and she was taking it very seriously and she was practicing it. And um, I think those were like really big things for me.
0: Well, and then on top of that, I those are very serious things, uh, but then the person also has to be fun, don't they?
1: They do, yeah. So those are the things that I don't think you can ever get to um, that point where you're talking about marriage until you're dating and having fun and like all those things, all those boxes are being checked early on, you know? So the person should be fun. You should really enjoy being around them. It should be easy to be around them, and then after all those things, you know, you're kind of start asking more serious questions, you know, and those serious questions would be like, like faith, you know, family. Um, I would also say too, one thing I noticed is that and I think this is just really good advice and something that I think all people should do um, if they're able to is uh, the more you're dating or the longer you're dating somebody and the more serious you're getting about that, you should be spending more and more time with each other's families
0: Hmm. That's pretty powerful. Um. Okay. So Rachel came back. She was able to take care of the baby. And you know, hey, that's real life. We get interrupted. Um. Rachel, let's back up to the engagement question. Dan kind of told the story of how you got engaged, but I just would love to hear it from your point of view.
2: Um. Did you tell the tent poles?
0: Oh no, I didn't tell the tent
1: poles. Okay. So we were on top of the soon.
2: Yeah. I had forgotten the tent poles. We had like this backpacking tent. And I had forgotten the tent poles the day before when we were backpacking.
1: At, at, the, la- at the last campsite, camp camp, yeah.
2: At the last campsite. And we didn't know it, but we get to the very top. And um, Dan's trying to set up the tent. And I'm in charge of cooking. And he's like, Rachel, where are the tent poles? I was like, uh, they should be in a bag. And he goes, And we looked through the bag. And we looked in and out of that bag. He goes, they're not here. I was like, oh, no, I must have forgotten them at the campsite. And so I forgot the tent poles. I was like beating myself up because I'm like, oh, you're so stupid. Why would you forget the tent poles? And Dan was like rigging up the tent with our hiking poles, trying to get something going. And then I couldn't find the, the utensils to cook with. So I was like, dang it, Rachel, you're just forgetting everything. And all of a sudden, I turn around, and Dan is lifting me up and going down on one knee. And I remember my first thought was, now? (laughs) (laughs) Really? You screwed up big time. (laughs) Like, like, it didn't seem romantic, at least to me. I mean, the the scenery was. But what had just happened kind of took away from that because it was just like we felt – Kind of like we like chickens with our heads cut off, right? Like we forgot the ten poles, forgot the cooking utensils. So my first thought was, how? No? And then I thought, well, Rachel, pay attention. This is important. Slap, <laughs> <laughs> slap. Pay attention. And uh, then it was all just you know excitement after that. So,
0: well, you know, if I'd forgotten a whole bunch of things and then just got engaged like 30 seconds later, I would think, I've got a free ride for my whole marriage to just be as absent-minded as possible now. This is great. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good story. So, well, then you got married, and then I guess maybe just say a little bit about married life um, from that point forward.
2: After marriage, it seemed very easy. Like, I would say those first four to six months, gosh, we didn't really need to even work on our marriage. There wasn't really a whole lot of communication that we were working on. Um, you know, it was just everything was, came easy. And I think that that was just God's grace, honestly. The, yeah. I, I personally those felt like marriage there easy. was just something about God just giving us the grace of each other and his grace of love between us. Um, and so those first, like, four to six months were super easy. Everything was wonderful, and then afterwards, you start to um, realize flaws in your spouse, flaws in yourself, um, and you realize that you need to be communicating better than you had before. And I think like those things kind of come up, yeah. um, came up later, but initially it was very, very easy. Mm-hmm.
0: Is, I there, the is there an example you can share?
2: Personally, for me, it was just the easiness of feeling loved, loved by Dan, loved by God. Like mm-hmm. I feel like God's presence was all around us mm-hmm. those first four to six months. And to be honest, like my prayer life wasn't even super strong. It was just God giving us grace. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's kind of it's, it's kind of like I don't know. Maybe like the first fifteen minutes after you receive communion, you kind of just you really feel the peace. You're praying. It's just really uh-huh. easy. Yeah. But you know, the rest of your day. May be filled with like troubles that arise, but I kind of imagine the first, I don't know, four to six months after we got married were kind of like this very easy, you know, time after, um, you know, compared to like the time after you receive communion, you know. Mm-hmm. The yeah, first God's presence is just kind of like, yeah, it's very difficult. Everything Everything's really easy. And we weren't really making a lot a lot of decisions at that point, too. We were just kind of maintaining the status quo of like Rachel was going to school, she was finishing up her, her degree. I was just working the regular eight-to-five job at this uh, new career path I had started. And, um, and so things were kind of just easy for us. Um, I think things got more difficult when we started to think about, um, we started planning things. We planned a trip to Europe. Uh, to, we wanted to go see Rome, and we wanted to see, like, you know, the Swiss Alps and Lourdes and things like that before we had kids. And we knew that Rachel was probably going to be pregnant Very soon. And so she was pregnant on that trip. And things got more difficult then because now you're making decisions and people have different ideas about what they want to do or how they want to do it.
2: And your hormonal if you're pregnant.
1: And your hormonal. So (laughs) all those hormones. So yeah, I would say like that's when like problems get to you start to deal with like communication issues and
0: you know. Because maybe, I guess what I'm hearing is it was suddenly just there's a lot of major decisions to make. Plus, There's a baby on the way. And nothing says serious like there's a baby on the way. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, Rachel, um, I had a chance to ask Dan while you were taking care of the baby. um, Let's look at the big picture. I guess just underlying principles, beliefs, attitudes. Uh, So when you walk into marriage and you're thinking about dating somebody and then marrying somebody that you're going to spend the rest of your life with and maybe raise all kinds of children with, what do you think you were looking for?
2: Um, I think that most women have a tendency, if they have a good relationship with their father, they have a tendency to look at the good characteristics and strong characteristics of their father. Um, so as far as like things I was looking for, someone who is a devout Catholic, someone who would lead me um in both holiness, but also just in my own personal growth. Um, Someone who would challenge me, someone who would protect me. um, And then someone who I could have an adventure with. I think those were someone who was fun. You have to enjoy the ride. Right. So those were kind of like the key things that I was looking for. Qualities I saw in my own father and then in the relationship between my parents.
0: I feel like, just knowing both of you that you're mostly reacting in favor to how you grew up, you know, to your own families, your parents, your brothers and sisters. Is that mostly true or were there any ways where you were reacting against?
1: I think it's absolutely true. I was, uh, I love what my parents had. Um, I thought that that was the way to live life, um, was to like, settle down, have a family spend time with your family, have fun, you know, do camping trips, go fishing. And uh, that's what I was looking for in my own life, too.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that very much so in favor of the way that I was raised with my family. And even today, like, I think what we want in our family very much is like what our parents did, right? We both want a big family, six, seven kids, or however many God wants to give us.
1: Well, we're 13. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 we'll see. God willing. Um, but very much so wanting that same kind of, um, dynamic that our families had. So, yeah, I would say you can always see where your family that you grew up in could improve and that's hopefully an improvement you try to make in your family, but obviously nothing's perfect. So I'm sure our kids will do the same where they're like, oh, mom could have done this better. Or Dad could have done this better, but hopefully they look at it and say like, as a whole, this was good.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you guys think that there's any kind of a rule in terms of how long people should date before they get married?
1: You know, I don't think there is a rule, but I think there's a general, maybe a general rule, maybe a general guidelines. I think a lot of people would say a year. I think, I, and I agree with that. Um, I think if you go a year, then you're at least seeing that person through all the seasons. You know, you're probably around their family, you know, they're going to be around your family, and uh, that's probably enough time. I think the younger you are, the longer you should date, and I think, you know, the older you are, you have that option, you know, you don't necessarily have to date as long. Um, I think as you you get older, you should know yourself better, Mm -hmm, and it should be a little bit easier to, like, read other people as well.
2: I think that's one of the reasons the Catholic Church makes it a requirement that you have to be engaged for at least six months before you get married in the church. Because if you're dating for six months and then you're engaged for six months, then that adds up to a year. So I think that the church in its wisdom also recognizes that you need time to really understand and
4: see all aspects of that
2: person.
0: Okay. Um, Fair enough. People give advice like guard your heart, um, which... You know, to be honest, I, I wasn't quite sure what people meant by that, but I, I think what they mean is try not to fall head over heels in love, just, you know, within the first 10 minutes of meeting somebody. Just don't let your emotions get way, way, way out in front of your reason or reality. And what are your thoughts on on this idea, this whole guard your heart concept?
1: Yeah, I kind of take it, I don't think there's like a you know definitive definition of it, but I kind of take it as meaning um, you don't want to make big decisions based on how strongly you're feeling about that person at that time, you know, so, you know, 10 minutes after you meet somebody, you're really head over, you know, you've totally fallen for them. And that's awesome. That's great. It's a normal feeling, but you wouldn't want to go out and buy a ring right away. That'd probably be jumping the gun a little bit. So I think just kind of like being prudent in those things. Um, I think it's also another way of giving um, advice and saying, you know, how you feel about the person emotionally doesn't always reflect where your relationship is at. Yeah. You know, um, and just kind of
0: remembering that, that.
1: Very true.
0: That your emotions could either be behind or ahead of where the relationship is.
1: Yeah, yeah. So okay. I think the relationship really has. Um, where you're at in a relationship, is going to be more reflective of time, more time-dependent, I think. Um,
2: Feelings are part of it, but...
1: Yeah. And what you've been through, too. Like, relationships grow when you've sacrificed. So, you can't just meet somebody and sacrifice right away. So, I think a relationship definitely is time-dependent um, because it allows for those things, like, for experiences like, you know, sacrifice, um, other, other things like that, so... Rachel? It really, it really can't be built on just good times. You know, that's kind of like what dating's about, but when you, when you get married, then it becomes something more, and it grows, and you, you suffer together, or you sacrifice. Relationships
0: get stronger there. Rachel?
2: Oh, I just completely agree with everything that Dan's saying. I think we see pretty eye-to-eye on that um, in regards to the necessity for time, um, to strengthen a relationship, to allow a relationship to have multiple experiences outside of just the
4: cute, lovey-dovey stuff at the beginning.
0: Okay. Um, let's try to consider what should a man be like, maybe ideally speaking, uh, what should a man be like before he considers getting married?
1: Hmm. I am saying. Okay. You know, at a minimum, you have to have you have to have access to your free will. You know, if you don't have access to your will, then you really can't give yourself to another person. So, kind of got to be free of um, um, all the addictions, which you know you have to know that about yourself. So that would be the first thing. Um, also, you have to be you have to understand what marriage is. Um, right away. Um, otherwise, you don't know really what you're getting into. You know, and it's not a rental car. You can't just return it when it gets damaged. It's a you know, it's a, it's a lifelong thing. So that would be the two things right there. You you, you want to have possession of your free will, um, and you would want to know what marriage is. And then maybe a third one would be uh, a commitment to being selfless mm. you know like knowing that i'm i want to grow as a person that's probably what i would say is your commitment should be that i i choose to grow as a person and not be prideful and stay the way i am and make other people carry the burden of whatever that is right. you know that'd probably be like ideally what a man should be you know in a very minimalist way of looking at it
0: okay Um, Rachel, uh, same question. What should a man be like before he considers getting married, ideally?
2: Um, I think the same things. I think um, this was a question that I actually found kind of interesting, especially considering what the next question is going to be, because it's really distinguishing man man versus woman here. Um, uh, But I do think that selflessness and sacrifice is one of the biggest things that at least if you're not already doing that because it's hard when you're single to really be truly selfless um I think because when you're married that's really being tested more um but I think the desire to sacrifice or be open to that in your future is something that's important um St. Paul says, you know, like, uh, Christ, uh, men have to be in the same way as Christ laid, uh, laid down his life for the church. So he says, like, to and to give up your life. And I think that's very much so descriptive of what it is for manhood is when what sacrifice looks like in terms of men is to give up their life, to give up everything. Um, so at least to be open to that road, it's important for a man.
0: Well, yeah, and I I think before people think maybe this is asking too much, I'm thinking it can't be asking too much because people have children, and then it's 2.30 in the morning, and then the child starts to cry, and they're hungry or they're thirsty or they're sick, God forbid, and uh, suddenly your life is just absolutely not your own anymore. I mean, you have this helpless, needy, defenseless creature and there's 7.7 billion people on the planet. So this is a very common thing. This just happens every single day. And people have to be 100% giving, 100% selfless. And that's kind of what I'm hearing. Am I, am I hearing the right thing?
2: Absolutely. God forces that on you whether you want it or not. Right? So that you have that screaming baby at 2.30 in the morning. That baby's not going to stop screaming. He's forcing you to get up and be selfless whether you want to or not. Um, and in that way, it really does teach you what love looks like. How do you love unconditionally? Um, God forces that upon you in marriage, especially if you have the gift of children. Um, he forces that.
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, Rachel, I'd, I'd really like to start this next question with you. Um, ideally, what do you think a woman should be like before she considers getting married?
2: This comes from, I think, like a Christian perspective. But I would say, ideally, a woman is prayerful. And ideally, Christ is the love of her life. If, like, gosh, that would be the ideal, right? Because at that point, when she meets the one, she already has this deep love for Christ. That's not something that they have to find together. That's something that she has that she can go to throughout the marriage, um, that can really just, it it holds their marriage together, right? It's three to get married. It's you, your husband, or you and your spouse, and then Jesus. So that would be the ideal. Um, but taking away from the Christian perspective, I would say that sacrifice, um, and I think for a woman, it looks different kind of going back. I was just really thinking about this yesterday. Like, how does that look different for a woman? Sacrifice, And obviously there's like the physical things that has to happen for her um, in the sense of, of motherhood. If that, that is a gift that she receives. There's the physical aspects of that uh, physical aspects of sacrifice there. But then I think also St. Paul kind of talks about subordination, which is something kind of hard for me. Cause I, as much as I like the alpha male, I also kind of, I told you I can be a bit rebellious, right? And so, what does subordination look like? To be subordinate, um, subordination is, I think, just it is to give to to to, to allow your husband um, to take the reins on those matters of authority.
4: Um,
2: and so that, in and of itself, is kind of a sacrifice, especially if you're an independent woman of today's society. But it's also that is under well, It's also under the pretense that your husband loves you and is willing to give everything for you right how easy is it for me to be subordinate to him if he is willing to give and wanting to give everything for me right it's this this mutual thing and so um i would say as hard as i can't believe i'm saying that subordination is kind of part of the answer but i
4: do believe that it is
0: yeah well uh I, I think people have talked about this particular topic for hours and hours. It's just fascinating to me how these things play out in individual people's lives. So, Dad, let, uh, let me ask you the same question. Ideally, what should a woman be like before she considers getting married?
1: Completely subordinate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I, uh, I'd say hmm, um, open to motherhood. Um, realizing what marriage is, you know, and like uh, persevering in that. And then also, uh, yeah, I would kind of reiterate what Rachel said a little bit. Like, there's definitely a, this also goes with the guy too, but a, um, like, I am second kind of attitude that kind of goes with marriage. You're putting somebody, um, somebody else before you and uh, putting their needs in their, their wants. Um, and you kind of work for the other person. So having that attitude, I guess is good or uh, working to have that attitude.
0: Okay. Um, thank you both for that. I think those are two very, very tough questions to answer in this day and age, especially because we have a gigantic emphasis in our society on equality, and egalitarianism, which I I think it's great that we have that, but equal doesn't necessarily mean the same. And people have to work out these ideas for themselves, you know, in their own lives, uh, I guess without reference to larger societal pressure. Um, What do you think the biggest struggle in marriage is?
2: Not letting the double win. I think that person that he's trying to divide you from the most is your spouse. Mm. I think it's a very, I don't know if you agree with that. I certainly think that. Um, and it's so, he does it so subtly. So that, I think that's the biggest struggle is first off identifying where you're being tempted in your life. And then secondly, fighting that, um, And that comes not only with your own independent fighting, but that also comes with the humility of communicating that with your spouse and having your spouse help you through whatever that process is.
0: Wow. I don't think I would have anticipated that answer at all. Thank you. That was really good. Dan, what do you think?
4: Um,
1: Biggest struggle in marriage. Um, Biggest struggle. Oh, I feel like it might deal with communication, but that's kind of, that's an obvious thing to say. Um, I would say uh, forgiveness is always going to be like, whenever I hear other couples that I've talked with um, talk about like troubles that they've had in their marriage, man, one of the biggest things they have to get over is like they've had problems that have gone on long enough to where they start to have Resentment and a hard hardness to like uh, want to forgive the person, and it's hard to bear patiently with your brother's faults when you're living with it every day. You know, um, and that's just difficult. Um, one of the things I, I you know I, I think about whenever I think about dealing with you know uh, dealing with other people's faults is you know I keep going to confession confessing the same sins all the time. And God always is forgiving me, you know, and welcoming back into the, uh, his grace. And so I think that's just an example for us to do for our spouses is that, you know, if, you're gonna, if your spouse has a fault, that you keep forgiving them and you keep, you know, you know if, if forgiveness is needed. And um, yeah, and don't let resentment take root because that's a, you've got you to get rid of that.
0: I love that answer. I, I love both of your answers. I just really want to emphasize two points is one is just the need to not let resentment take root because the minute it does, it just grows and grows and grows. People get bitter and resentful. I think we all know people who have just had certain resentments their whole lives, and these things have just festered. You know, you can think of any person maybe older than you, where they've had the same resentments for the last 30, 40, 50 years. And uh, it just only gets stronger, stronger, stronger. So so I guess not letting resentment take root. And then you also said, both of you, I think, said it's really important to talk with your spouse about things early on uh, before little problems turn into big problems, essentially. Kind of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is a little bit of what I'm hearing. Is that, is that accurate?
2: Absolutely.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay.
2: And then not only just talking about it, but like coming up with a plan together on what you're going to do about those things. So it's basically like I'm telling him these are the struggles, the sins that I have. Can you help me with them? And that is, it's so hard to do that in your pride to say these are the sins I have and I need your help, right? I need you to help me. The person who's like the source of my sins, you could think that, right? But I need your help. Um, it's a uh, very much kind of like what we do with God, right? Like we have all these sins and we need his help. We need his help to have the grace to be
4: able to combat those things.
0: I love that. I love what you're saying that if there's a problem, we should be trying to think in terms of problem solution. I've just met any number of people, men and women, where they spend 99% of their time on the problem. I guess I've done that like fretting about the problem. Not actually solving the problem, not thinking about a solution to the problem, uh, not having the courage to actually face the problem, just it. and I think then that can also lead to bitterness and resentment. So I, I just really appreciate your answer completely. Um, well, I, I have, I think, three more questions, but but you guys can take this in any direction you like because they're pretty broad questions. The first is, let's just say that over the course of your life you meet a hundred couples and they've all been married for 50 years or longer and they're all very, very happy. Why are they happy? What, what sustained them through 50 years of marriage?
1: I think the key there is that they're, they're happy. Um, so I think a lot of people could still end up there and be married and, and content. Um, but if they're happy, I would think, and are happily married, I would think that at some point in, either before they got married or in their marriage, they chose, um, they chose to grow, um, instead of choosing pride. And I think those are two just contradictory things is that, um, you know, we're not perfect you know, when we first get married, and we have to change a lot. And that change um, means that you can't be prideful, you know. Otherwise, you're making other people, you know, deal with your own faults. Um, so I kind of think of like uh, just as an example, like temper. You know, you see, like one. Let's say you have a husband who has a, a big temper, and he feels like he just he doesn't need to change that. That's not a big deal. Well, now everyone else is going to have to deal with that problem um, because he's not open to growing about that. You know, it's uh, it takes humility to grow and to change. And so, I think if you're going to be happy and be happily married, um, I think you have to be open to changing and um, that that transformative process that humility brings. You know, when you're changing for the better. The only thing that's going to stop you with that is pride. You know, thinking that you don't have to or that you're fine just the way you are.
0: You really Um, have to confront your flaws. You can't just maybe say, know what they are, but you actually have to confront them. them. That's kind of what I'm hearing.
1: Take it or leave it. Yeah, that's not a good philosophy for for anything.
0: Yeah. Yeah, It always kind of bothered me when people say, hey, this is just the way I am. I can't help it. That just always seems so fatalistic and pessimistic to me. Um, yeah. Rachel let me ask you if you've met let's say a lot of couples and they've all been married for 50 years and they're very happy what do you think is causing all of this happiness
2: I think this really plays off the answer to the last question of whatever the last one was about uh, what's the biggest struggle in marriage I think, I think that this one plays off that because the answer to what's the biggest struggle and how you can problem solve that is what's going to make you happy so if, if you know what your sins are, you go to confession, you know what your sins are, you know what your flaws are, you're communicating the problems that are in your marriage with your spouse, and then the both of you are working on that together for one another's growth. Um, I think that's just the key to why marriages can end up happening. So it kind of comes down to communication and work and prayer, like those three things. It's like coming together on a regular daily basis. Daily, we, you need to communicate daily. Um, I think that that would be the answer of of how spouses can be happy after fifty years.
0: Hey, I just realized you invented a brand new trifecta. You've got work, uh, you've got talk, and you've got prayer. That's that's pretty good, Rachel.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, I guess my drive-back has
0: changed now. Huh? Yeah, and they're all four-letter words in some people's minds. Work, talk, and prayer. There you go. Yeah. that so, me the
2: next <laughs> Well,
0: Well, uh, my last two questions, uh, here's here's my second to last question. What should I have asked that I didn't ask?
1: <laughs> what should you ask? asked? Hmm. Same.
4: Did we talk about it? We
2: talked, yeah. So one of the biggest, I think, like, things that if, if we were to talk about, just something we noticed in our marriage that I think is certainly pertainable <sighs> to other people, would be yeah. that when we first got married, uh, we had these big fights and arguments.
1: Not when we, but before, yeah, we, before after six we got, got married. We just, yeah.
2: no, no,
1: it was, it was
2: after no, before it we came got married. we got good. married, we didn't have any arguments. Not
1: really before, four months, but after that. Oh, yeah. After well, I would say before we got married, we talked, like during the engagement, we we had issues where we talked about money and we had concerns about whether or not, like I thought Rachel was going to be very controlling and not spend anything, not like, do anything that was fun and Rachel was going to be all, (laughs) and then I was going to be like, spend for it.
2: Yeah, I thought Dan was like always spending money and always out to have a good time and like would buy things just on the fly. And so we each kind of had these fears about one another. I thought, and they we led to arguments yeah, too. Yeah,
1: they, did. they led, We had arguments about all, all kinds of things, and then we got to the root of that argument. We found out that you know her argument was rooted in just a fear that I was gonna you know go crazy. She was worried that I was, uh, I was fearing that she was gonna be really controlling. And uh, my argument.
2: And what we found out after I would say about a year was that, that none of that was true. Like Dan wasn't a spendthrift. Even though he bought little tiny things for a dollar here or a dollar there, he's not a spendthrift. And likewise, I'm not really trying to control Dan in how he spends money. Well, kind of now, <laughs> I like well for instance, like we, we communicate when we spend big purchases, but I would say very rarely do I say, no, we're not going to do that. Right, that's that's pretty rare. I don't impede on your generosity here on um, mm. some big purchases that you yeah. make usually. Yeah. So we actually found that we saw eye to eye, and that these fears that we had were kind of
4: kind of controlling
2: us. Yeah, they
1: ways. were kind of they're kind of baseless. They didn't uh, nothing ever um, transpired yeah. from those arguments or fears that about the other person, and a lot of times. When you have fear, that's I think that's the case, is that you know 90% of the things you worry about never happen. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's definitely something we notice right away.
0: Well, absolutely. Mark Twain said that. At a certain point, he said, I'm a very old man. 95% of all the things I ever worried about in my life never happened.
2: Yeah.
0: So... Do you guys feel like you just caught a lucky break that you just sort of fundamentally misunderstood each other when it came to money that, you know, Rachel thought, hey, Dan's going to waste it. And Dan thought Rachel's going to never want to spend a nickel. She's going to want to live in a cave and just come out on triple coupon Thursday and and that's going to be it. Do, Do you feel like do you feel like you came together somehow or do you feel like you just misunderstood each other? What what was this? Was it a lucky break? What was was it?
1: Misunderstanding each other, and then also realizing that how much we were wanting to work together for the same cause. Like we were both we both have it in our minds that we wanted to be um, you know get out of debt as fast as we could. And when you both have are on the same wavelength for your goals, you start to just he's like, no, I'm not going to spend money, and like, and of course we're going to do something for our anniversary. You know, it's like but, right. uh, so we just kind of yeah, you know, kind of came together and we realized that there really wasn't uh, too much of a difference in how we were going to handle money.
2: Yeah, I agree with Dan. Part of it's a misunderstanding of one another, but I think another part of it is working together. And, um, I would say now after we're only three years married, so we're still newbies, but um, <laughs> so we still have things that we fight about and consistent things that come up um, and. What we can learn from that, even though we're not misunderstanding each other, like it's been three years. Now we kind of know where we each are at in regards to some of those things. So we're not really misunderstanding each other. But the second part of that, of being able to work together, I, that's not lucky. That's work, right? That's two people working together to solve a problem. So okay. I don't think you can just say it's only luck. I do think that there is some work there too.
4: Yeah.
0: Great. Great. Okay. I just I love that answer. Uh, I just never would have guessed it in a million years that 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 would have been the thing. So this whole conversation has just been great for me. I, I just have one last question. It's my favorite question. Um, you're sitting on the front porch of your house and you're 100 years old. Well, one of you is six years old, or so. Maybe somebody's 106, and the other person is 100. Um, you're holding hands and you're surrounded by children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and you're just looking back at a great life what things are you most excited by or satisfied by or maybe humbled by
1: oh how gracious God has been i'm going to be there just right away be gratitude thankful thankfulness and um probably wouldn't have any worries or concerns at that time. Uh, maybe just except for the souls of all of my grandchildren and their grandchildren, things like that. Just praying for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would be an awesome place to be. Um, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's all kind of, all of those really point back to God. I think when I'm 100, I'm probably pretty close to death. We're, we're both probably getting there. So it's kind of like, well, wouldn't you be excited because you're kind of hopefully go to heaven and meet your maker like that would be pretty exciting um i think that would just be where all your hope is lying and then what are you most satisfied by i think also points back to god is like look at what i did for your kingdom like i have this all right here this is what i did for your kingdom and i think um through through his help obviously but i think that would be the point of satisfaction
0: that's beautiful Absolutely beautiful answer. I Rachel and Dad, I just really appreciate you taking the time to answer my, my questions and I, I'm just very grateful. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Tim, thanks yeah, for
0: well,
1: asking yeah. us. Well yeah, we yeah, pleasure. Pleasure coming on and talking with you
0: again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys. I'm just super grateful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you can do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. Until next time.